Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, our text will be verses 24 to 34. We are right in the, the midst here of this, this examination by the religious leaders, by specifically the Pharisees, examining the man who was healed by Christ. You know, and, and, and throughout this, this is very interesting because John writes much about conflict. There are many instances in here where we're, we're reading of Jesus and his dialogue with the religious leaders. There's great details that John gives us about you know, what's going on and why, why there's this debate between Jesus and the leaders or Jesus and the people. He writes of, of the reactions of the people, the reactions of the leaders, their response to Jesus. He writes much about that. In many instances, they want to stone Jesus. They want to plan to kill him in some way. They, they don't like his words. They don't like his teaching. They don't like anything about him. John writes much of the controversies here of Jesus's words, Jesus's teaching, how unbelieving people react. He writes much about Jesus exposing the darkness of hearts, the unbelieving hearts. He writes much about their response. They respond in anger, resentment, violence, prejudice, illogical arguments. They re respond in a variety of ways, exposing the darkness of the hearts of men. Now, why does John write about this? Why does John give us all this information? Why does he write about all these controversies? Why write about all these debates that Jesus has with, these, with, the, the, with the people, with the unbelieving? Well, I believe he does so. Because John tells us at the very beginning, in John chapter 1, in verse 10, the apostle tells us, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. He writes as well that there was the true light, Jesus being the true light. But John says of him in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it, did not overtake it, did not overpower it. He tells us those things from the very beginning and then throughout his gospel, he's, he's manifesting that, he's demonstrating that of Jesus and his, his conflict with the religious leaders and his conflict with the people. No matter what it is that the people are hurling at him or saying about him, or, trying, or how they're trying to discredit him, they cannot overcome the light. They cannot overcome the truth of God. And I believe that's one reason why John keeps telling us about these conflicts. He keeps showing us all these different instances in which Jesus is challenged, but Jesus always overcomes the darkness, always overcomes the arguments, always overcomes the criticisms. He is indeed the, the God of truth. Now, here's something that is very unique to John's gospel. We don't read really anywhere else in the gospels of any particular person during the life and ministry of Christ that are being examined as this man is. The anger and the resentment and all of that is always aimed at Jesus. But here you finally see one particular follower of Jesus, one who is going to identify himself as a disciple of Jesus, who is now receiving all the threats, who's receiving the slander, who's receiving the persecution. And as far as I know, there's no, no other instance in the Gospels in which you read of this. You do read of the disciples and the apostles after in the book of Acts and all of that, but you don't read of any of Jesus' followers in the time of his life and ministry who endure those attacks, except for this man. Now, of course, you do got John the Baptist, who was a significant figure. Don't want to rule him out. 
He was indeed the forerunner of Christ. He was the greatest of all, as Jesus says. But this is just one insignificant man who would be considered insignificant. And in this instance, the darkness did not overcome him. The darkness did not extinguish the light that was in him. And you see the power of God working in this man who is standing before the very ones that want to kill Christ. He's standing before them with with just being emboldened, having this great courage that has come upon him. And you're seeing how it is that God works through insignificant people to silence even his accusers there. And this is hope for us because we're insignificant in the eyes of the elite of the world. We're insignificant, we're unworthy, and in the instance that we ever stand before them, we can be assured and be promised and, 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 and have this assurance that God is going to empower us to speak boldly before them. Regardless of whatever may come, God will be working in you and the darkness will not be victorious over you. This is a wonderful account that indeed gives us great hope of how God works in the lives of believers to bestow the grace that is needed in the time of the greatest trial. Let's look at this together here in John chapter 9. We'll begin at verse 24 and read through verse 34. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is the inerrant, authoritative, infallible word of the living God. And let us hear the words of the living God. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become one of his disciples too, do you? They reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is the amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. Let's pray together. Oh, righteous Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for the great hope that it gives us to know that you are never idle. You are always working in us, working through us to shed your light, the light of our Lord Jesus Christ into the darkness. That through you, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Holy Father, be glorified in us this day. May the word of God be applied to our hearts by the spirit of God, that he would teach us, that he would, that he would guide us through this passage, for we need him at every moment to understand, to know. Father, I pray that you be glorified in us this day and that you would bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. So we're coming to the end of his examination. They're going to bring him back again. Remember, they had already examined him before. They had already discussed with him what exactly happened to you. He already told them. They didn't believe that he was truly born blind. So what do they do? They bring in his parents. They bring in the parents. They say, is this your son? Yes, this is our son. Was he born blind? They're asking him all the, the, the questions to make sure that this is indeed the man. The parents, however, as we talked about last week, really abandoned him. They really just put everything on him. 
They, they're, they're afraid that they'll be put out of the synagogue. They're not going to stand up for him to say he was born blind. We know this is our son. Yes, we know exactly how it happened because he told us. We're thinking that this guy is, is a prophet as well. They don't say anything like that. They really just pass the buck and say, he's of age, ask him. And technically speaking, that if you were at least 13 years old or, or older, that you could speak for yourself. So they really just put it all on him so that they're not put out of the synagogue because it was a fearful thing, as we talked about. It was to be socially ostracized if you were to be excommunicated because the religious life of Israel was so intertwined with every other part of life. So you would be socially ostracized. So they don't like what his parents had said. They're not helping anything. They want this discredited. That is their main goal. They're not concerned with anything else. They want to discredit this miracle. And so here we are. Once again, they call the man in who was born blind. And you see the, the irony that is here in the book of John, and it's all through John. Specifically here, it's those who claim to know, who claim to see, who were truly the blind ones. These blind Pharisees. They say to him, a second time when they call him in, they say, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, they're not saying to him, you need to praise God for what he did for you. You need to praise God because he, he allowed you now to see you were blind. That's not what they're meaning. This harkens us back all the way to the book of Joshua. In chapter 7, when you remember that the children of Israel, as they're conquering the promised land, that they were defeated. And they're wondering, why were they defeated? And specifically, it was because of Achan, who had taken some of the treasure and who had hid it when they were, they were forbidden to do so. And so Joshua goes to Achan after it is found out that it is him, and he adjures him in that way. Give glory to God. That means own up to it. Speak the truth. Admit your guilt. And that is exactly what they're meaning when they say to this man, give glory to God. We know, and this is emphatic when they say this, we know that this man is a sinner. They're saying to this man, we know this is all rubbish. You need to just admit your guilt. Admit that you're on his side. You're in cahoots with him and just tell us the truth. We already know. That's what they're meaning. They're blind. And Jesus refers to them being blind. If you go back and you read Matthew chapter 23, like four or five times, he says, you, you blind guides, you fools and blind men. And he's speaking to them. They believe that they see. They believe they have all this figured out, but they are truly incapable of seeing the truth. Their fallen hearts are are willingly stubborn and keep them from believing. We know, they say, this man is a sinner. We have an undis indisputable knowledge here that we know this. All that is is just demonstrating their ignorance and their pride and their darkened hearts. These who are to be the leaders, the ones who teach the others, who lead the others into the truths of God are supposed to, to be the teachers of the law. They make spiritual claims, but they do not understand spiritual truths. They are enemies of God. Stubborn and arrogant. And they desire this man to admit his guilt. They're trying to coerce him. They're trying to intimidate him. That's all they're trying to do. If they can find any way possible to discredit this whole miracle, that's what they're going to do. That's what they're after. That's their, their, that's their goal. They've determined Jesus is, is a sinner. So give glory to God. We know. You know, as parents, we say that a lot to our children. We already know what you did. You might as well just own up to it. Sometimes we do, and other times we're like fishing. Hmm, I wonder what they did do. <laughs> They're saying this very emphatically here. They're saying this like 
We know. We know he's a sinner. You know, any view that would ever determine that Jesus was a sinner, or even more that Jesus would delight in sin, or accept sin, is not from God. They're not at all uh, in, in agreement with the scripture. They're not in agreement with what has previously been written. They're enemies of God. This is Christ, the, the glorious one, the Lord of glory, who is God in the flesh, who is on the earth, who is speaking all of these things, who is teaching all of this. These are the very words of God that they've been hearing and just outrightly reject. These are the works of God that they've been seeing and they outright reject. He's a sinner. He's, he's, he's calling others to break the law, to break the Sabbath. He's leading others to do so. He's a troublemaker. This is, this is man who delights in sin. And he teaches others to do the same. Well, that's not our Lord. That's not who Christ is. We know that. And that's the amazing thing. As a reader of the Gospel of John, as they're saying this automatically, us as the readers are looking here and saying, you're truly the blind ones. You can't even see. You are darkened in your understanding. You're alienated from the life of Christ. You're an enemy of God. You're not even able to, to submit yourself to the law of God, that which you claim to teach. And yet you're trying to guide others. These are the elite. You know, the wise of the world or the unregenerate of this world really present themselves as apostles of reason. And speaking against the Christian faith, they know. They know without a doubt what is true and what isn't. They're very arrogant, very conceited. I don't know if you've seen this on uh, social media or not, but there was a clip of Joe Rogan who was speaking against the Christian faith. And then you see Doug Wilson who is playing the video and Doug Wilson would stop the video and make comments. Stop the video, make comments. You, know, you have Joe Rogan who was saying things, you know, very definitively. This is all myth. This is just mythology. There is not one shred of evidence to prove the truth of the Bible. And he's going on and he's trying to discredit it. And yet automatically he's ruled out any evidence. Any evidence that could ever be shown to him. He's already ruled it out. Because in his darkened heart, he's already ruled out the, the possibility that the Christian faith is true and right. And that's what the elite do. That's what the world does. They've already ruled it out. They say, well, show us the evidence. You show them evidence and they're not willing to believe. They come up with illogical arguments to try to, to get out of it. Or the last resort that they also did to this man is the same that the others do. Is that if they finally get backed into a corner, what do they do? They begin to persecute you. They begin to slander you, name call you, all kinds of things in order to, to rid themselves of you because they can't argue against you. Why? Because the truth of God will stand. They're, that's what they're, they're about here. They don't want to hear any of this. They've ruled out any possibility. He's the promised Messiah. They are truly blind. But not for the man. The Pharisees are blind. But the man. Here you see that clear sight of the healed man. He answers them. Now, understand this. This is a man who was formerly blind, who was a beggar, who depended upon the goodness of, of everyone that passed by him to give him something that he could eat or that he could maintain the, his place of residence wherever it was that he lived. Maybe he didn't have a home. Who knows? Maybe he lived with his parents. But that was his way of trying to, to gather some type of an income in order to sustain himself. And yet, this beggar, who is insignificant, unworthy to be even thought of by the religious elite, is now standing before them, and instead of cowering to what their, their demands, instead of giving in to the, their coercion and their intimidation, what does he do? He stands and he says, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. I'm not getting into that with you. But here's the thing I do know. He is the proof. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. 
his experience could not be denied. He couldn't say to the, the religious leaders, well, maybe something else happened. Maybe God had mercy on me in spite of this man. No, he knows exactly what happened to him. Jesus had made mud, applied it to his eyes, said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. He washed. He's able to see. He knows it was Christ. He knows what happened to him. And he will not deny what happened to him. He's immovable. The one thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. Not only does he see physically, but now he's, he's, he's seeing spiritually. He has this spiritual insight now. He's not going to be intimidated. They, they say to him, so what did he do? How did he open your eyes? And I, I just, I love this. Because you're looking at the, this, this man once again, before the religious elite. You're looking at him, and here's what he says. And you see a lot of sarcasm here. Some of us are good at sarcasm. <clears throat> you see that in this man right here. You're in good company, buddy. He says... I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become one of his disciples too, do you? Now, these are the people that are very angry, very upset, but he understands exactly what they're doing. They're trying to find anything to, to once again, discredit the miracle. So if they can have him to testify once more, find any little thing that is different, something that has changed, then they can call him a liar. They can discredit his testimony and they can say before the people, this was all a hoax, this was all a lie. But this man isn't having it. He knows what they're doing. And so in one way, he mocks them. You keep asking me these questions, why do you keep asking? Do you want to become one of his disciples too? Now, implied in that, is that this man is identifying himself as a disciple. You don't want to become one of his disciples too, do you? Implying that I'm one. Do you want to become one too? Think of the boldness in that. Everybody knows they're going to put out whoever confesses him to be the Christ. We learned that earlier when, when it was talking about his parents. He doesn't care. He knows what happened. He knows what the truth is. And he's not wavering. Not at all. He acknowledged Christ to be a prophet. When they asked him. As they're you know, deliberating amongst themselves. And they look at him and they say. Well what do you say about him? He said. He's a prophet. And then he says. Basically and here he's saying. And I'm a disciple. I'm not giving in to what you're trying to do because what happened to me is true. This further questioning is not going as it is intended to go. But how is it that this man could do this? Again, we're going back to the, the boldness of him and the courage that he has. And the only thing that we can ever say is, is this is the working of God in the man. A man who was a poor, blind beggar, depending upon everyone, is now standing up and he's, he's standing confidently in the truth. And he's proclaiming without wavering, without being coerced, without being intimidated. He is proclaiming the truth of what he knows of who Christ is. He's a prophet of who he now is, a disciple. How can they do that? And it is so amazing because you're seeing the power of God working in this man. You're seeing the power of God emboldening him. That he can stand before ones that would probably want to kill him too. And that is how the, that is how the Lord works throughout all history. Of those that stand before authorities knowing that their life is in jeopardy. We talked about that a little bit last week. 
Because the grace of God is with them. The spirit of God who dwells within them is strengthening them at every moment to say the things that they are. To speak the truth of God in the face of adversity. And giving them this understanding and this knowledge. I think of Ulrich Zwingli. Some of us are familiar with Ulrich Zwingli, who is uh, a Swiss reformer. You know, one thing about him, just to say this in passing, you know, we, we look back at, at Martin Luther, who, who started the, the Protestant Reformation in 1517 and all of this, but, but really, Zwingli started it earlier. He was saying the things and teaching the things that Luther would eventually become well known for, but Zwingli was saying them first. When you read of Ulrich Zwingli's first disputation at Zurich in January 1523 against the vicar of Constance, all the clergy was gathered there for this great council to discuss all the teachings and the doctrines that Ulrich Zwingli was speaking and preaching. Obviously against the Catholic Church, against the Catholic practices. So they, they bring them all in. They bring in the, the vicar of Constance. And they're going to debate because many people were calling him a heretic. And so he gets before the council and he says, any one of you that would like to stand in, in, in debate, who would like to stand and, and refer to me as a heretic and, and bring out your charges against me, here I am. Let's do this. No one speaks anything. The only one that does is the vicar of Constance, who is trying to convince the council that he is a heretic, that he is teaching wrong, that he is teaching against the church, and even saying bold things like for the, some others that he knew that were led astray by these, these teachings in this doctrine, that he showed them from the scriptures that you can pray to the saints and Mary is, is one of your intercessors and all of this stuff. And you see, again, the boldness of one of God's people standing before the council standing before the vicar of Constance and he's saying, show me in the scripture. You show me in the scripture, I will believe it. And so the, the boldness of all of God's people always going back to what they know to be true, what is written and standing firm and being immovable. This is, this is a characteristic of all of God's people throughout the history of the church. God works through insignificant, unworthy people in order to shame the wise. And we read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1, beginning of verse 26. We read this. For consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. He uses the weak of the world to shame the wise. The ones that are not wise according to the flesh to shame the wise, to shame the strong. Because he can use weak vessels and empower them by his spirit in order to silence their accusers. To give them such courage to stand before authorities. He's criticized for his replies. The text tells us that they reviled him. And they're trying to, once again, uh, slander him. And they, they're saying, you're his disciple. But we, we're disciples of Moses. And they appeal to Moses. But here's what Jesus had said about that. Back in John chapter 5, beginning of verse 45, and he's already said this to them. But Jesus says, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? If they had truly been disciples of Moses, if they had truly been uh, th uh, those who, who adhered to the law, they would believe what he said. 
Because all of the, the, the law and the, and the prophets and all of that are pointing directly to Christ, as Paul says in Romans, that Christ is the end of the law. He's the fulfillment of it. You cannot take Christ away and still have the law of God. You can't separate the two. Though that's something popular today is trying to separate the law and, and Christ. And here are things like, well, we're not under law, we're under grace. And you think, well, technically speaking, you're a Gentile, and so every you weren't under the law to begin with. But there is that element there of understanding that the law and grace, they're not at odds with each other. They go together because the law exposes you as a sinner. It, it shows the righteousness of God. It is the standard of holiness that God desires of all men. And when you're looking at the law, it's a mirror. It's showing all your blemishes. And then it leads you to Christ. That's why Paul says it's a tutor to lead you to Christ. They don't want to see who they really are in the law, and that's why they're not accepting what Jesus says. Because Jesus is pointing out their hypocrisy, pointing out the darkened hearts that they have. You're not really adherence to the law. If you were, you would believe my words, because it all leads to him. Why can't they? Why do they not believe? Again, because they're unregenerate. They are not of God. Jesus had told them that already. Because the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Period. They are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So all the words that come out of the, the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ that are spirit and life. They don't believe. But the amazing thing is. And, and you see the great grace of God in this is that you were permitted to believe. You read of what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, to you it has been granted not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his name's sake. So he's, he's saying to, to his readers to speak of their suffering and all that they were going through, in passing, he says to them, you were granted not only to believe. It was by the grace of God that you were able to believe. Because the natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. Jesus has already said, you cannot come to me unless it is granted to you. But for those who are privileged to come, they come not because they're, they're wise, not because they're strong, not because they're elite. They come because... God has chosen you unto salvation to shame the wise. And he has granted you such faith to stand before authorities as this man and to declare his truth. This is what God has done in your life. You say, well, I haven't, haven't had to stand before authorities in this way. I haven't had to give an account. Maybe not. Maybe not at this moment. But a time may come in which you may have to. And you can be assured that when that day comes, that you will stand firm. Why? Because you are the elect of God. He chose you. That's what Paul was just saying in 1 Corinthians 1. He chose you. You are his. And never will the darkness overtake the light that is in you. The presence of God that is in you will never be extinguished. They are blind Yet he clearly sees, and they are willingly ignorant. In verse 29, we see, they, they say this. They're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he's from. How many times has Jesus already said that he's the bread that comes down out of heaven? He's been sent by the Father. He comes from heaven. He has said this over and over and over again, and then performing the wonderful works that he has been to authenticate the truth of what he's saying. That's what works. That's what the signs and the wonders were for, to authenticate him. Anybody can go around saying whatever they want to about themselves, but when you have the power of God that is accompanying you, and you're performing all these amazing miracles, that is the authentication that what you're saying is true because God is with you. But this man, we don't know where he's from. And again, 
the healed man, he says to them, well, here's the amazing thing. This is just amazing. You don't know where he's from. And yet he opened my eyes. He is deliberately pointing back to them and saying, you guys are supposed to be the ones who investigate this stuff. You're supposed to know where he's coming from, where, he, where his origin of his prophetic call is from. That's what the idea is. They know he's from Nazareth. They've acknowledged that before. You're to know this stuff. So isn't this amazing? You have no idea. Yet he opened my eyes. Here's his argumentation. Here's the poor beggar who then becomes the teacher. He says, we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Now, this is grounded within the scriptures in many different places. Proverbs chapter 15, 28, Psalm 66, in which David himself would say, if I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. That the worship of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, he doesn't even consider it. And so that's his argument, which is grounded in the scripture. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. As James would say, the, the, the prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then the second thing he says, since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a blind of a, of a person born blind. There were instances in which a blind person was healed, but never, never was there an instance of a person who was born blind that ever regained their sight or was able to see. This is once again something that the religious elite should have understood because in the time of the, the Messianic age, the blind would see. That's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 42 and a number of other places. That in the time in which the Messiah would, would walk on the earth, in the time of his coming, that the blind would see. That's why when John sends his disciples to go ask Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? And what does Jesus say? Go back and tell John that the lame walk, the blind receive their sight, the deaf hear. Because it was characteristic of his coming. Since the beginning of time, it's never been heard that any, any person who was ever born blind was healed. And lastly, he says, if this, if this man were not from God... He could do nothing. So his argument is very, very indisputable because it's grounded in Scripture. God doesn't hear sinners, but God obviously hears him because he's doing these things. No one has, has ever heard of a person born blind receiving their sight. So it's very evident that this has to be from God because even the forces of evil cannot mimic that. They can't do that. So if he's not from God, or he, he says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He then becomes the teacher, doesn't he? The poor beggar then becomes the one who is instructing the elite and debating back with them. The Spirit of God in him working as such to... to Bring out this, this argument. One that pushes them into a corner. So what are they saying? Well, indirectly they admit exactly what he's been saying. Their answer to him is, you were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? Remember, what the, the, the initial question was that the disciples had asked Jesus. When they first saw the, the man who was blind from birth. Who sinned? This man. Or did his parents sin that he was born blind? Because the idea at the time. As we've been talking about. The idea at the time was. Is a baby still in the womb of his mother. Can commit some significant sins. In order that he would be born with some type of a defect. 
And so they, they acknowledge that when they, are, when they are criticizing him. You were born entirely in sins. And are you teaching us? So they're acknowledging you were born blind because of sins that you committed in your mother's womb. And now you're going to instruct us. So indirectly, they're admitting the very thing that he's been saying. I was blind. And now I see. And by their response. That's exactly what they admit. You were born entirely in sins because you were born blind. You sinned in your mother's womb. And are you really teaching us? Again, it's an illogical argument. They have no argument. They have just been schooled by this poor beggar in logic. And then their anger burns against him. They can take it no more. Their pride has been cut. They've been pierced to the heart by this man. And so their only option then, they can't debate with him anymore. They can't try to discredit him anymore. This is just not working. So then what's the last resort? We're going to excommunicate you. You're out. We're putting you out. And so they've excommunicated the man. The pride of these elite couldn't allow an unworthy, unimportant beggar to school them, to teach them. And how could he? These are experts in the law. How did they not have any great arguments to give? Because their arguments were not grounded in truth. Their arguments were not grounded in Scripture. But this man grounded what he said in the truth of God. And God's truth cannot be proven to be false. It's truth. Again, no other place in the Gospels that I know of was any follower of Christ treated as such like this man, examined like this man, attacked as this man, not until after Christ ascended into heaven. But perhaps this is indeed here in order to give the rest of us hope and the rest of us courage and resolve, strength of conviction, stand immovable in what we know to be true. So here's some things to look at, some amazing things that we've been going over here throughout this whole ordeal. That those who are truly set free will not be enslaved again. He was not going to deny it. He was given eyes to see physically. And he was given spiritual eyes to see with faith. He was tested. And he was victorious because the working of God in him. You can be assured as we're looking at this that the power of God is going to be working in you. Whether this is on a grand scale or whether this is on a minor scale. In instances in which you have to give an account to others. In which they are attacking you or they're slandering you. Or they're questioning you. How can you believe this stuff? Don't you know about science? Don't you know about this, that? And what they try to do is use tactics like that in order to make you feel dumb. To make you feel stupid. Like you don't know anything. But if you stand firm in the truth of God. And you will be victorious in, in, in that trial. Don't resort to what they do. Because even the people of, of the world are going to do exactly what they did. They're going to get very angry with you. They're going to start calling you names. They're going to treat you like you're nothing. You're unworthy of my time. And so they will criticize you in whatever variety of ways that they find. In order just to get you to be quiet. Because they have no argument now against you. If you base everything that you understand within the, the realm of reality, within the truth of God. Then no one will ever be able to back you in a corner because this is God's truth. And God's truth permeates God's world and it operates according to God's standard. Everything that is in the world operates as such because God has, has created it that way. God has established it that way. 
So when it comes to what reality truly is, you know what reality truly is because God has created it. You know what, what morality is because God has said it within his word and he has, he has written his law upon our hearts that we have a conscience that bears witness. When it comes to the value of human beings, which everybody wants to appeal to, only the Christian faith can truly say that you are valuable and you have dignity because you're a, you're a creation of God. You're an image bearer of God. And so when you look at how things are in the world and you're looking at, at all the, the things that, of how it operates, it operates as such because God has created it. And if you just stand firm in the truth of God and not try to venture into other areas in order to leave the, the, the authority of Scripture in order to try to make some type of an argument, you're not going to fail. Because the Spirit of God is working in you, applying that truth to your life and applying it to your lips as you speak it. That is His strength in you. And you all will have it. You study the Word of God. You know the Word of God. You, 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 you love it as much as, like, like, the, like the psalmist says, it's like, it's like honey to my lips. You rejoice in the word of God. You're learning, growing. And then when the time comes that you stand before those that would attack you, that you, you just stand firm in what you know to be true. And the spirit of God bringing back to your remembrance those things that you've learned in order to rightly give an answer or, or a defense, a reason of the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. This man had maybe only been converted, if you will, for maybe a day, something like that, before he's brought before the religious leaders here. But you notice something, again, as we've been talking about, he doesn't turn back. He doesn't turn his back on Christ. He doesn't turn his back on what he knows to be true. Which is also a characteristic of one who is truly converted. They will never turn back those who are truly in Christ. Because the Christian faith is not like any other faith. It's not like any other religion. You can choose to become a Buddhist if you want. And you look and you, you can read about you know, the, the Eightfold Path of Buddhism and all of this. And you say, well, that's, that, I'm going to apply that to my life. You can, you can read of other religions and, and the tenets of that religion. And you say, well, those are some interesting things and, and some things that really agree with me in, the, in my life. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to adhere to that. I'm going to be a Buddhist or I'm going to be this. But in the Christian faith, that's not so. Something happens to you. And that is the Spirit of God invades your life. And He causes you to be born again. You don't just choose to become a Christian as you would choose any other religious faith come because God has beckoned you to come. You come because God has changed you and enabled you to come. And you have, and we don't like to say the words experience, but you have an experience. And it's real. You have had a spiritual awakening by the Spirit of God, and as a result of that spiritual awakening, never will you turn back. Never will you give up. We say that we can say those things like, oh, I just want to give up, but you'll never give up. Why? Because the Spirit of God is in you and He will not allow you to give up. He will not allow you to turn back. Can you even imagine your life turning back into sin? Knowing what you know, knowing what you know to be true? Could you ever just think to yourself, well, I could leave all of that and go right back into falsehood? No. Anyone that can do that was never converted to begin with, as John says. They went out from us because they were not really of us. So the Spirit of God has you preserved. The Spirit of God has you in His hand. And never will you turn back. And what a grace of God that that is, that you will persevere. This power of God, this power of the Spirit of God is in you, dear friends. It's not just in these that we read of in Scripture and we think, wow, what mighty people God has in Scripture. The same Spirit of God that empowered them empowers you. He has gifted you. He's taught you and continues to teach you. And He gives you courage. 
And while we may be insignificant to the elite of the world, never are you insignificant to your Father who is in heaven, who chose you, who sent His Son to die in your place, and then whom both the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit to apply the benefits of Christ's work to you. Never are you insignificant to the God of heaven. You are His. And He is yours. How amazing our God works within us to accomplish such things. And that's why I think the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, and this is true of all of us, that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Death nor life, principalities, powers will ever be able to separate us from the love of God. For if God has justified us, who can condemn us? Be encouraged, dear ones. And rejoice in the Lord and all that He has provided for you. We think of things at times, what will we do? How will we respond? Rest assured that the grace of God will be with us. And that the power of God will be working through us. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, we give you praise, honor, and glory for how amazing that you are. Father, we, we rejoice in you. We rejoice in, in all that you gift us with. And we are so undeserving of. We are truly amazed as we see how you work within your people. How you accomplish great things in those that are deemed unworthy by the world. Father, let us be encouraged that, that you can use us and do use us in order to accomplish great things for the kingdom. Help us, Father, to be even more bold, to be courageous in order to speak your truths and to declare the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and to know that, yes, we will receive opposition but for those upon whom you intend to apply it to their hearts, Father, the darkness cannot overcome it. Let us remember that, that we always go out in the power of the Spirit of God. We always are speaking that the Spirit of God would work and move and accomplish whatever you desire. Help us to be faithful, never to be scared, Never to be fearful. To always remember you are the sovereign God who is in control. And thank you that through the Spirit of God you allowed us eyes to see. You removed the darkness from our hearts. Allowed us to come to Christ to see Him in all of His glory and majesty with eyes of faith. And Father, be praised. Be glorified in us this day. Let our hearts rejoice because of what you have accomplished, not ourselves. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen.